he was known as, as you said, as a, as a quiet but determined person, a committed person, a person who never wavered from, uh, from, from the task in front of him. That is, uh, he believed that African-Americans uh, as citizens in this country should enjoy the franchise. And he fought tirelessly against uh, uh, great pressure and risk uh, to uh, open up opportunities and to encourage people to face down tyrants who would otherwise uh, prevent them from voting. Hello, I'm Tanya Scott-Williams, your host for Why It Matters, Black Alabamians and the Vote, an Alabama Humanities Alliance podcast. And you just heard from Professor Brian K. Fair of the University of Alabama School of Law. In this episode, hear Professor Fair bring to life the legacy of W.C. Patton, an Alabama voice for black voters nationwide. We also discuss terrorism and legal battles over voter suppression laws. Join us as we continue exploring Black Alabamians' long fight to fully engage in the electoral process. This conversation includes project poet Ms. Ashley M. Jones, who you'll hear throughout each episode. Let's join the conversation with Ms. Jones. Tonight, I wanted to sort of match the theme of the night, um, and I chose some poems from my first book called Magic City Gospel um, about the civil rights movement. And the one that I wanted to start off with, I think gives us um, a little peek into the political landscape of Alabama at this time. And it features George Wallace, who as we know was governor of Alabama and who did a lot of, uh, we'll say questionable things um, in the name of um, ambition and segregation. And so this poem is set um, on June 11, 1963, when he famously stood in the doorway at the University of Alabama to prevent two students from registering. And it's called Rammer Jammer. I'm not a football person, but I'm sure all y'all know what, what that is. Rammer Jammer. Between the thighs of the doorway, you are powerful. The confetti of camera clicks and your smart business suit and the swamp of teenage protesters swaddle you with sweat. Important men from Washington have come to clear you out. Tension, thick and bitter as a watermelon rind. From the doorway, you see Vivian and James waiting in the government car. They wish to register here. From the doorway, you see walls and waves of ballot-faced whites. They are check marks in the next election. It is only after your speech is delivered that you realize how thirsty you are. Your cotton mouth is unbecoming for a state leader. How nice it would be to sit on your porch with Lurleen and a glass of sweet tea. How nice it would be to get out of this heat and out of Tuscaloosa and back to marbled Montgomery and its halls that echo obedient, loud, and white. Mm. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. So um, tonight's episode, uh, the topic is an Alabama voice for Black voters nationwide. And it's going to center on Dr. W.C. Patton. He was deeply involved in the voting rights movement and helped to ignite a political revolution 
Uh, registering African Americans to vote was no small feat. They faced uh, segregation, hostile, a very hostile climate. And it was determined this period of those who were against Black folks having access to the ballot, you know, it determined to keep them out of the franchise. And so we have um, leaders like Dr. Patton, some of them quietly doing the work behind the scenes. And so we'll have a chance to, to really dive into his life tonight. Uh, Dr. Patton put his life at risk, like others during that period, uh, to bring uh, Black folks into the electoral process. He was a graduate of Alabama State College, which is now Alabama State University, and he was an educator. And tonight, my guest, Dr. Brian K. Fair, will help us to explore Dr. Patton's life and legacy, as well as discuss some current issues around the electoral process. Dr. Fair, I'm so happy that you're with us tonight. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Uh, thank you, Tanya, very much. And I want to thank the Alabama Humanities Foundation for uh, sponsoring this program. And I want to thank uh, Ms. Jones for uh, that extraordinary piece of uh, poetry. So powerful and so, so timely, uh, given where we are in the United States. Uh, so I'm delighted to be a part of this program. Uh, to really talk about uh, Dr. W.C. Patton, you have to put a context around uh, the courage, the bravery, the risk that he faced every day in seeking to register uh, uh, African-Americans uh, to vote in Alabama. But what, what too many Americans don't understand is that for most of our nation's history, most Americans did not enjoy the franchise. Uh, that was certainly true for African-Americans for 180 years or so. It was also true for other people of color, uh, Mexican-American citizens who after 1848 should have been entitled to vote, could not vote. Uh, Asian Pacific Islanders, uh, Asian-Americans who had come to the United States were not permitted to vote. Uh, Native Americans, uh, our indigenous populations, not permitted to vote. Uh, women, of course, uh, for most of our history, not permitted to vote. And while Dr. Patton's focus was on the African-American vote, his work, his life's work, opened up voting opportunities for all of these other people as well. Uh, mm -hmm. his, his work in, in Birmingham, in Butler County, uh, uh, in, in places like Greenville, uh, along with the work of others in Selma, would, would bring international attention to the oppressive society created in Alabama and other places, and the, the tragic loss of life that so many people faced in seeking to register and vote, whether it was in Alabama or Mississippi uh, or Georgia or other places throughout the South. Uh, so uh, uh, Dr. Patton, as you said, Tanya, was first and foremost a teacher, uh, became a, a principal, uh, but he was raised in Marion County. Uh, he tragically lost his parents before his sixth birthday, he was raised by his grandmother. As you said, he uh, was a dedicated student, would attend uh, what is now Alabama State, 
and then would and then would go to Sumter County and uh, begin teaching. Uh, and while teaching, uh, he encouraged his students to become activists. Uh, and 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 he was not just a someone who encouraged from the sidelines, he was also a leader. And the principal organization that he used for that leadership was the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Uh, everyone who knew Dr. Patton would know that he was an NAACP man. Uh, and for the better part of 25 years, he held local, state, and national offices uh, within the NAACP promoting voter registration among African-Americans. And I'm glad you brought up his time with the NAACP because I do understand that was one of the leadership uh, positions uh, through that channel that he was able to be so involved in the community. And it also happened during a time, or rather, as the NAACP became um, more involved in communities, there was a law eventually that outlawed the NAACP. So in, in spite of that, though, of course, there was a period where, you know, that was challenged, but in spite of that, Dr. Patton was still able to organize, still able to get young people activated. Can you kind of speak to that work that he did while all of these challenges were happening legally, you know, with the NAACP, speak to some of the work that he did with students? Sure, absolutely. Again, uh, Dr. Patton uh, was, was uh, the director of voter registration operations for the NAACP. And during the time that, that the state of Alabama banned the NAACP, um, 1956 or so to about 1964, Dr. Patton uh, uh, temporarily moved to Memphis, uh, Tennessee to uh, lead voter registration drives, voter registration efforts, uh, again, uh, around the South uh, with other uh, field directors of the NAACP. So he was he was a again a national leader within within the NAACP, uh, and uh, as with other people, uh, for example, Fred Shuttlesworth in uh, Birmingham, uh, Ruby Hurley, another NAACP woman in Birmingham, C.T. Vivian in Selma, uh, they all encouraged people to go to the registration boards to face down those who were seeking to block them from registering. So, so out, again, for the listeners, uh, Alabama, uh, and I say Alabama, the, it, it, was, it was the state, it was white people in the state, not every white person, of course, but white people in the state did not want African-Americans to have the power of the franchise because with the power of the franchise, they could decide who was elected locally in the state or who represented Alabama nationally. And so whether Democrats uh, or Republicans, the power structure did not want to compete with the power of African-American voters. And uh, let's speak to that, to that power structure also. And, and I'd really like to unpack that. You know, we can all remember, you know, bring to mind photos, videos, images of some of the attacks on African-Americans as they were either 
leading voting rights drives or people just going to try to vote. But let's let's really look at who that opposition was. Maybe uh, tell us a little bit about you know where that pushback came from. And we do understand that it was it was a it was a power move because you limit who has access, as you said, to the franchise, which limits you know others inputs on who is going to be in control. But if we could just take a look at who some of those folks were and 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 how they managed to prevent for such a long time African Americans from having access. So the political structure in Alabama currently has the Secretary of State as the the chief elections officer. And then there are members of the board of registrars and then there are local probate judges. Um, and uh, then and now, all of those people uh, are players in deciding who can actually register uh, to vote. Uh, and of course, again, this is a time when there's no Voting Rights Act. There is, there's no, uh, this is before 1965, there is no federal law protecting the fundamental right of American citizens to vote. Uh, all of the laws are local laws, and the local laws in Alabama did not permit. African-American men had been affirmatively disenfranchised by the state. So uh, people have to understand, too, that in the 1901 Constitutional Convention, uh, after, uh, after the Civil War, after the re short Reconstruction period, Alabama enacts a new constitution in 1901. And the president of the convention uh, stands on the floor of the assembly and says, the purpose of the, of the new constitution is to establish white supremacy under the law. And Alabama still lives under the 1901 constitution as it's been amended since then. Uh, and it is not clear to me that the state of Alabama has ever disavowed its pledge to establish white supremacy by law. But it's absolutely clear that before the Voting Rights Act, Southern states were largely left to their own devices, whether they were grandfather clauses, literacy tests, poll taxes, uh, political gerrymandering, uh, and, of course, violence, intimidation by law enforcement, uh, Jim Clark, uh, Bull Connor, people like that in, in law enforcement, the Ku Klux Klan, the Knights, uh, uh, the, the Citizens Councils, the Knights of the White Camellia, organizations that terrorized uh, Black people in their homes, in their businesses, in their churches, uh, used economic reprisals, threats of job loss uh, to torment and prevent African-Americans from voting. So when you, when you, when you talk about the power structure, uh, it was comprehensive. There were government officials and there were rogue organizations, criminal organizations that functioned to uh, work together to prevent African-Americans from exercising their constitutional rights. When we take into account the massive pushback and the, and the threats on, on the lives of African-Americans just trying to exercise, trying to have access to the ballot, 
it is uh, it is incredible. It's an incredible story, and it's one that we should never forget. Uh, and and I don't want to jump too far ahead of myself because this, at some point I wanted to unpack what we're seeing now. But there may be echoes of some of those things that may be happening right now. But as I said, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so I'll circle back to that later. Um, I have I'd like to talk about some of the and you mentioned several of the people during that time uh, that Dr. Patton was associated with who were all engaged in this really important work. Is, is there one thing in particular that stands out to you about Dr. Patton? And I, I came across uh, how he was described at one point as a quiet storm. Mm. Uh, did, he, he, did, you know, he didn't garner as much attention as, as some folks did during the movement, but he was powerful and focused in the work that he did. Is there something in particular about his life's work that stands out to you that we may not be aware of that, that you'd like to share with us? Well, I, I think there's so much about his 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 life. Again, uh, like like many other African Americans at the time who were limited in what they might do, he chose to become a teacher, uh, and he devoted his life to his students. and And I think uh, many of his students, uh, his former students, would celebrate his life because he would open up doors for them. He was known as as you said, as a, as a quiet but determined person, a committed person, a person who never wavered from, uh, from, from the task in front of him. That is, uh, he believed that African-Americans uh, as citizens in this country should enjoy the franchise. And he fought tirelessly against uh, uh, great pressure and risk uh, to uh, open up opportunities and to encourage people to face down tyrants who would otherwise uh, prevent them from voting. Uh, and, and so his, I think his legacy is that uh, Birmingham and Selma uh, would become the, uh, I guess, ground zero for this collision between uh, people seeking to exercise their constitutional rights and, seeking, and, and those seeking to prevent them from doing so. Uh, and uh, what, we see, what we saw uh, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, in 1965 was the culmination of those forces, those who were determined, even in the face of death, to uh, open up the nation's eyes to what was happening uh, in, in this country that we project as a place of equality, of fairness, of, of, uh, uh, of, of liberty and justice for all. Um, the images of, of police in tear gas masks, wielding batons, some on horseback, beating uh, men, women, and children on the ground, unleashing dogs on them, uh, is inconsistent with those kinds of images. Uh, and so uh, I think Dr. Patton's work ultimately galvanized the national government to 
not just face down George Wallace in the schoolhouse door, but to face down those, those uh, Alabamians and other Americans who sought to deny equal political rights to African Americans and others. And uh, the vote, right. I guess one more thing I would say about his legacy is uh, Birmingham became known as Bombingham because uh, some of the domestic terrorists of the time uh, placed bombs in churches. We know about the 16th Street Baptist Church, but hundreds of churches in, in homes and businesses of, of Blacks who challenged, again, the power, the, the political white power structure. Uh, and some were killed, some were maimed. Uh, but again, people like Dr. W.C. Patton, like Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, uh, like Ruby Hurley, like Hazel uh, Hackett, uh, they, they faced it down anyway. And I think there's a, a line that Dr. Patton was famous for saying, uh, if you're going to die, die for something good. And I think he knew what risk he uh, took, but he took them anyway, uh, not just for himself, not, not for his own political power, not for his own economic benefit, but for the benefit of, of other African-Americans uh, uh, and other Americans who believed in uh, a different kind of society. I'm amazed that the time is moving quickly. We have an hour for this conversation, and we clearly won't be able to cover as much as as I think we would all like about Dr. W.C. Patton. We're gonna we're gonna pull back from the conversation for just a minute. I'd like to bring uh, this Ashley Jones back on board with us. As I said at the beginning, um, she is the the project poet, and and she started us off with this fantastic piece. And uh, Ashley, if you could share with us maybe two others that you've selected this evening. Yeah, I have been enjoying this conversation quite a lot. And it's almost as if, Dr. Fair, you knew what I was going to read next. I don't know how you did it. Um, but I selected to read right now um, two pieces also from this first book, um, Magic City Gospel. Now, of course, the giveaway is the second book. So that's exciting, you know. Um, but anyway, these two poems talk about um, this idea of the power structure um, that you were describing and how it was all reaching, like there was nowhere you could go where the power structure wasn't pressed upon you. Um, and, you know, part of the the um, project of this power structure was to make, at least in my opinion, to make Black people feel uncomfortable, erasable, and not valued in um, society or in the government or wherever. So these two poems that I picked um, depict two of these acts of terror. One is the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, and the other is what happened at the Children's March um, with the fire hoses and dogs. So I'll start with Addie Carol Cynthia Denise. Amen, Alabama. Bring in the Dixie sun. Cover us in the delicate, glassy sunshine erupting all over. Find us fevered in the Glen, Jones Valley. Have you seen the churches with windows stained? Infinite steeples just turn any corner. Do you know how we bleed like Jesus? 
loud vibrato melting the Sunday sky, new mercies exploding, dynamite over our brown bodies. Pretty little ones dressed in lace beneath quivering old ones in hose and hats. Remember how 16th Street shook? Symphony of fiery coughs that turned our Birmingham to blood. Under what God's hand did we die like this? Villains, victors, what did you see? Wah-wah watermelon, a chorus of coons, X's on the eyes, a grim cartoon. Y'all come back now, here, zippity-doo-dah, till the day you die. Um, and for those keeping score, that poem is in the abecedarian form. So it goes A to Z, each line, um, just for those keeping score. Not everybody. But <laughs> um, and the next one that I wanted to read um, is, as I said, about the Children's March, which, as we know, happened in 1963. And these children of various ages, you know, marched through Birmingham and were met um, by the Commissioner of Safety, which is an ironic name, of course, because he was really the commissioner of danger um, for Black people, um, Bull Connor. Um, and he ordered the police and fire department to um, hose down these children and to set loose um, these dogs. So this is um, a poem which is written in a series of haiku, um, which I wrote to try to attempt to give these children um, a different voice. Birmingham Fire and Rescue Haiku, 1963. What about us said we were on fire? What said extinguish quickly, fill up the hose and set the dogs loose? Could they smell our confusion? Or was it our singing? Were our voices like sirens, a chorus of blood? We were wet black seeds in that raw Birmingham flesh. We germinated. Did the photos show our fingers stretching like roots? Did they show our eyes how they reached sunward to the hot, bright, silent star that could turn water to steam, seeds to fruit? Did they see themselves become our fertilizer? Thank you. Uh, so here's the challenge that we have, Dr. Fair. Uh, I, I, I would really like to, to give space now to the period that we're in. Dr. Patton's work, as you said, his legacy and, and the impact that he had, uh, the ripple effects were incredibly impacting the nation. So we, we had a chance to briefly look back over that life. So as we look now at where we are, we just had a presidential election. Uh, then just yesterday, the Electoral College confirmed that Joe Biden will be the nation's next president. And during this period leading up to the election, the months leading up to it, there were many voices that were arguing that not everyone was going to have free access to the polls, that there were processes in place, either through laws or other devices that would shut primarily African-Americans out or, or people in certain communities uh, would be shut out of that process. What, if any, voter suppression strategies did you observe during this time? And <clears throat> how does that, excuse me, how does that compare to the period that we just came out of? Could you speak to that for us? Sure. Uh, yeah, let me just also echo that um, uh, Ms. Jones has uh, 
poems are extraordinary and powerful. And I hope that uh, the listeners will, will find her work and that she'll have broad readership. Uh, so uh, again, I would just start by saying, uh, uh, Ms. Williams, that we've had voter suppression efforts in the United States from the very beginning. Uh, and there have been efforts to restrict the vote. Uh, and so that's got to be our starting place. There's never been a period in American history where some people have not been denied the franchise. And there is this continuing fight between powerful parties to control who gets to vote, especially to control their opponents. And again, that was done historically by literacy test, uh, discriminatory uh, policies, poll taxes. Uh, there were efforts to use at-large voting rather than single district voting so that uh, a, a black community or Mexican community could not elect a person of their choice. Uh, so voter suppression is, uh, is just part of the American fabric. Uh, and it remains so today. Uh, since, the, so after the, the adoption of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the power of the national government was finally put behind protecting the right to vote for African-Americans, for other people of color. Uh, and we saw soaring rates of African-American registration, registration among other, other groups. Um, and, uh, but, but other devices have come forward. Today, what we see is uh, various strategies to purge voter rolls unnecessarily. We see uh, claims about voter fraud that have no basis in data at all, whether they're made by the, the president or by local officials. There is no significant evidence of election fraud in the United States. That has just been an excuse for denying people the right to vote. We see new voter ID laws. Uh, we see restrictions on early voting, restrictions on absentee voting. We've even seen restrictions on veterans, people who go up and, and fight on behalf of the nation we see we we see efforts to to limit the time for military personnel to submit ballots. I mean, it's it, the most un-American, unimaginable policies have been adopted. Uh, we see uh, so so yes, I would say uh, voter suppression efforts to suppress the vote are alive and well, and and it takes people like a Dr. Patton, like a Fred Shuttlesworth. Uh, today, there are organizations like Fair Fight or the New Georgia Project, uh, Stacey Abrams has been leading, uh, the Movement Voter Project, the uh, Black Women Vote, Black Girls Vote. Uh, we've seen uh, dozens of organizations, uh, gr grassroots organizations, uh, across the country uh, in the pivotal sw swing states of the Midwest, 
as well as across the South, emerge to try to encourage more people to register to vote, uh, to help people uh, navigate the the obstacles, the 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 tedious requirements to vote. We don't make voting easy in the United States. We make voting hard in the United States. And in Alabama, we continue to make voting much harder than it needs to be. Uh, you know, we could, we, we, we have, anytime you get a driver's license today, you can register to vote at that, at that moment. Uh, but, but unless you're asked, it's not necessarily automatic. Uh, so we could make IDs available to people at no cost. Uh, the federal government could do it with our social security numbers. Uh, we, we have technology. We've recently done a census where many of us responded by virtue of computers and using technology. We can make voting much easier. Some states have gone to all mail-in voting where there are no requirements to show up and stand in line for four or five or eight hours. Some states are making voting much easier than other states. And again, their, their political parties control this. It's controlled locally. Uh, and uh, it, it takes a will uh, among the secretary of states, among the people uh, in a state to decide if we're gonna make voting easy. Uh, Alabama, in my view, has chosen to make voting harder. Uh, again, by discouraging or not allowing early voting. But, but the remarkable thing, uh, Ms. Williams, is during a pandemic, during a critical time, 155 million people actually voted. Uh, some conveniently through the mail, some early voting, but across this country, people braved a pandemic to, to cast their votes. And, and that is an extraordinary thing and something I think we should be proud of. We should be proud of the work that all these organizations are doing across the country to encourage people to, to get engaged to participate in our democracy, to register uh, and, and cast their ballots for whomever they cast their ballots. Uh, so there's a lot of, of nonpartisan get out the vote efforts that are going on around the country that I think are, are pushing back against those powerful forces that continue in our country to make it harder for some people to vote. I think um, we'll we'll have to leave that part of the discussion there, and 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 the note that you left it on uh, is a hopeful one, because there are many uh, voices, many hands out doing the work in the field uh, to make sure uh, to continue to push back against those forces, as you said, that would deny the right to citizens. They're they're pushing back against that, and that is a reason to celebrate. We have several questions that have come through. So let's see where we are in our questions. We've got some really great ones here. So Dr. Fair, uh, this is for you. Uh, why do you think that Dr. Patton wasn't as widely celebrated as other civil rights figures? 
Well, I think among uh, among his peers and among people within the NAACP, he was he was widely known. Uh, I think uh, you know uh, for for this generation, uh, this current generation doesn't know many of the of the figures, the hidden figures who uh, who made a way uh, out of no way, as the saying goes. Um, and that's because I think we do a poor job of teaching our civil rights history. Uh, you know, I think Alabama does a poor job of teaching its its history, especially the history. Uh, I think much of the United States tells a story, sort of a happy story of of upward mobility, of 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 equality, fairness, and liberty, and that's just not the American story. And so only those places that, like ASFA, that teach uh, a broader sort of history that dig into the civil rights period um, will students actually learn about figures like Patton, Dr. Patton, or Reverend Shuttlesworth, or again, um, Ruby Hurley, or Hazel, ha Hazel uh, Hackett uh, in, in Greenville, um, Alabama, uh, or uh, Fred Gray. Uh, right. Uh, uh, lots of folks don't know one of the greatest civil rights lawyers in the uh, in the history of the United States, Fred Gray, uh, who for 60 plus years has represented people like Dr. Patton, like Rosa Parks, like Dr. King. Uh, so I think it's a problem of the way we teach. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we we might know Arthur Shores. Uh, uh, and uh, the giant of Dynamite Hill, we might know a certain judge or a certain lawyer, uh, but we don't always know uh, all the people. Uh, again, the, the concept of hidden figures. There are so many heroes, so many people, even today, who are doing extraordinary community grassroots organizing and advocacy in the tradition of Dr. W.C. Patton, who... It's interesting that you said that because actually that actually leads into one of the other questions. So if you could maybe share uh, some of who some of those groups are. Uh, we had someone who sent that in who says, who's, who's doing similar work to Dr. Patton in our current times. So it seems you were about to go into that. Again, uh, uh, their, their organizations, uh, uh, the uh, Black Women Vote, the leadership of, uh, of Black Women Vote, uh, uh, the uh, Movement Voter Project, uh, the uh, organizations, uh, what, what many uh, philanthrop philanthropic organizations are trying to do is to go into local communities, find local community activists who have the trust of the local people and to provide them with resources to lift their work up. A lot of that is going on uh, across the United States. Um, I know it was going on in Michigan, it was going on in Wisconsin, it was going on in Pennsylvania, it's been going on in Florida, in Arizona. Some of them are uh, Native American people, some of them are Mexican American people, uh, many of them are African American uh, people, especially African American women. Uh, again, a name that we know 
of course, is uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, but the uh, Community Foundation of, of Atlanta is actually supporting many other organizations beyond the New Georgia Project and Fair Fight organizations that Ms. Abrams started. But, but she's a model of it. I mean, she was a, a, a political figure in, in Georgia. Um, and, and again, I imagine that there are uh, politicians, uh, I, I think of someone like, uh, like Chris England in Tuscaloosa, uh, who's one of the uh, uh, state representatives. Uh, I think of, of uh, certainly uh, the voter registration efforts uh, that are being supported by the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, through uh, Nancy Abudu, uh, who is the head of the voting rights practice group for the SPLC. I'm not sure how many people know uh, uh, Nancy Abudu's name, but uh, she's been uh, filing lawsuits against voter suppression, against efforts to prevent people re-entering society after a period of incarceration from, from voting. Um, there's no reason that people, when they return to the society, should be denied the vote uh, or that it should be hard for them to vote or that we shouldn't communicate with them about how to restore their voting rights. Um, and that's, that's been happening in Florida, in Georgia, in, in Alabama, and other places across the South. So uh, again, there are lots of different uh, organizations. And uh, if you, if you uh, visit the Southern Poverty Law Center's website uh, and connect up with the Voting Rights Project, you will find both some C3, get out the vote, voter engagement, efforts, and you will find some C4 uh, efforts being sponsored by the SPLC Action Fund. Uh, uh, but, but again, I don't want to say that this is, this is, I mean, the NAACP is still doing this work. The ACLU is doing this work. Uh, again, the Movement Voter Project raised upwards of $100 million to support grassroots organizing across uh, many parts of the country. Uh, but if you, if you Google uh, grassroots voting rights efforts, whether again, you're interested in the Southeast uh, or the Southwest or uh, the, the indigenous populations uh, in, uh, in parts of Arizona or New Mexico, you can find uh, who some of those uh, new players are. So we have time for, I think, one more question, and then we will bring the stones back on uh, for another poetry selection. So at some point during the conversation, we talked about Dr. Patton's work with students and youth uh, during the NAAC, during his time with the NAACP, and just his work in general. And so our viewer is asking the question, could some of those methods that he used back then be useful today? Uh, absolutely. Uh, of course, you know, I, you know, we live in a different time. Um, you know, today we live in a time when uh, this uh, young people today are on social media. Um, and uh, they communicate via social media. They, uh, they uh, organize through social media. Uh, and uh, so I think we have to... Uh, 
we have to encourage um, all of these organizations. Um, I mean, there's the traditional way of knocking on doors. Well, you can't really knock on doors during a pandemic, um, right. right? So we make phone calls. Um, well, that's that's one way uh, it, uh, is to use email or, or phones. Uh, but we need to use all of the platforms that are available to us uh, to, uh, to both educate uh, young people about why it matters to vote, uh, about the sacrifices that people made uh, to enable, uh, especially young people of color, to vote, that people literally gave their lives uh, in Montgomery, in Marion, in Selma, in Birmingham, so that African Americans could actually vote. Uh, that the ultimate sacrifice uh, was was made by so many, uh, and 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 the only way to achieve change, we need to persuade young people that the best way to achieve change is to organize, to participate, to actually cast ballots. Even when the choices that you have are not the choices that you would necessarily want. Um, uh, I happened, uh, I voted, the, the candidate of my choice ultimately did not get the Democratic nomination, but I voted anyway. Um, and, or they organize a new party. They, if, if, if they think that the existing parties don't work, then they organize a new party. But not participating after the sacrifices that so many people made, uh, I, I think is, is an unfortunate way and you can't really expect change if you're not participating in some way, creating a new, a new party. Sometimes I think that the Democrats and the Republicans have real problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe we need a real third party that is anti-racist, that is anti-sexist, that is uh, anti-homophobic, that, that uh, doesn't... Uh, uh, engage in, in, in hate based on religion. Maybe we, maybe, but it's really for young people to decide what kind of country do they want to live in? Uh, and to talk about that. And, and if they want to see change in better education or more gun restrictions or less student debt, more, more policy around climate change, the only way to do that is by participating, not by sitting on the sidelines. Thank you for that, Dr. Fair. I, um, we have a few more minutes left in our time tonight. Um, I could go on with you. I have a feeling that we could have a much longer discussion around this work. And as you said, there is so much to remember and uh, there's so much work ahead for all of us to do. Uh, Ms. Jones, are you with us still? We'd like to um, have you give us one more piece. Yeah, um, I have really enjoyed listening to this conversation. And I will say, whoever's out there who's starting that alternate party, like, please, let's do that. Please, like, <laughs> we need it. Uh, I want to sign up for that <laughs> as soon as possible. 
Um, so the last poem that I selected um, to read is also from this first book, Magic City Gospel, um, which really, I guess, is my like Birmingham civil rights kind of book. Um, the second one, the scope is a little bit bigger. Anyway, this poem um, I wanted to read because I'm thinking about um, the legacy of what Dr. Patton did and those like him, but also the legacy of the hatred um, that was put on display during the civil rights movement. Of course, it has existed since forever. Um, but, you know, we had TV and, you know, um, photojournalism to capture it. And so I'm thinking about that and how even now um, people like me, I'm 30, so I was not even a twinkle in my parents' eye when these things were happening. But even I, a young person, I'm still haunted by some of these um, these suppression tactics, um, oppression tactics, violence, all of that. And um, this poem that I'm going to read is actually set at the Civil Rights Institute in Birmingham. Um, there is a room in the Institute where you walk through and there's these images um, of white people and there's an audio track that calls you every kind of name. And at the end is this KKK uniform illuminated, you know, um, in a glass container. And that room has always frightened me um, just down to my very bones. Um, so I wrote this poem when I was maybe 22 and I went to the Institute with a summer camp that I worked with and I decided to stare into its eyes and take away its power somehow. Um, and the interesting thing is, even though I'm maybe not as afraid of the KKK as I used to be, I am as afraid as I was of this uniform of proud boys or you name it, whoever else it is. So this is a poem about that and also about how we don't need to forget white women um, in our conversation about people who oppress, um, those of us who are oppressed. Viewing a KKK uniform at the Civil Rights Institute. All you can really tell at first is that it was starched. Some Betty Sue, Marge, Jane, some proper girl with a great black iron made those corners sharp. The hood, white and ablaze with creases, body flattened open, for husband, brother, son. Behind the glass, it seems frozen, waiting for summer night to melt it into action, for the clean white flame of God to awaken its limbs. In front of it, you are dwarfed. You imagine a pair of pupils behind the empty holes of the mask. Behind the stiff cotton, would the eyes squint to see through small white slits or would they open wide as a burning house to hunt you down until you pulled like old rope before them? Well, I want to thank you both uh, for being with us tonight. Dr. Thayer, thank you much. Uh, thank you so much for the, the conversation and sharing the information about, about Dr. W.C. Patton. The Stones, of course, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I look forward to uh, each piece that you bring to this project, and they're all very meaningful. You've been listening to Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote, presented by the Alabama Humanities Alliance and funded by the Why It Matters Civic and Electoral Participation Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm your host, Tanya Scott-Williams. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Alabama Humanities Alliance, go to alabamahumanities.org.